Well, this past week while I was teaching all day, my wife had uh, girl week. And uh, Barbie's parents are both with the Lord now, and they said, where do your parents live? She said, uh, uh, in heaven. And they uh, have uh, preceded us. But uh, there are five children in the Green family, and I married the oldest, uh, Barbie, and then the youngest is a daughter. And uh, so there are two of us that married in to the daughters, and then there are three that married the sons. And so uh, two of the sisters and three sister-in-laws get together in the summer for a week, and they do girl stuff. Uh, they go to a tea room, and uh, they get pedicures, and, uh, you know, they uh, sit, you know, and just have fun. So I, uh, I felt like a sheik in a harem uh, part of the week, but uh, my younger son came over, and we ended up playing games late night with them and things like that, but... Uh, uh, one of those was Steve's wife, uh, Mary Jean, and uh, she left, and we took her to the airport Friday morning as I was heading into school, and so they're back uh, in, uh, outside of Nashville and Franklin, where they live, and Steve's brother, David, is one of the other brothers, and he uh, works with him in the ministry there, and uh, we, uh, we couldn't be more blessed. Uh, her parents were uh, phenomenal, phenomenal parents. Uh, five children, all five love the Lord, 18 grandchildren, all 18 grandchildren love the Lord, and it was uh, one of the greatest blessings of my life to marry into that family and to uh, be blessed by them. So I am uh, I'm richly blessed. And it's been a great day of blessing for me to be here. And um, most churches, and I, I like a spectrum from contemporary to traditional, and uh, I have two musicians in my family who uh, sing real, real well uh, in my immediate family, and they love the, the classical as well, and so I've gone to more operas than uh, I care to admit. Uh, while my daughter-in-law was going through school. But uh, it is uh, so often there's a few people with instruments on the stage and all of the musicians in the body like you've seen here today uh, sit out there and watch. And that is so tragic to me. And so thank you for doing it well and doing it all. And uh, uh, thank you for the blessing of the day. And I hope one of the speakers cancels again and I'll come again. And uh, uh, it's great to, great to be here. In 1996, uh, Washingtonians suffered through one of the worst blizzards in 50 years. Uh, the snow piled up, the government shut down, the commuters abandoned cars all over town, and yet, yet close to 5,000 people dug their way out every single day and headed downtown. Uh, were they stocking up on bread and milk? No. They just trudged through up to 17 inches of snow and ice to see an art exhibit. For three freezing months, the hottest ticket in town was uh, a small exposition of paintings by 17th century Dutch master uh, Johannes Vermeer. Some art lovers even camped out in front of the National Gallery all night in the cold to be sure of getting a ticket. Inside the museum, according to one reviewer, the crowds walked past Vermeer's light-filled portraits with almost a religious hush. Yet these paintings were mostly depictions of Dutch housewives going about their, uh, their ordinary daily duties, preparing meals, writing letters, making lace. Why would paintings of such ordinary subject matter create such a sensation? The answer had to do with Johannes Vermeer's ability to infuse the ordinary with a sense of spiritual significance. Vermeer's Christian sensibility can be seen clearly in one of his most famous paintings, entitled, Woman Holding a Balance. 
It features a young woman weighing her jewelry to assess its value. Behind her on the wall is a painting within a painting, a rendition of Christ's last judgment in which souls are being weighed in the balance. The point is dramatic. The young woman's choices and values are literally under the judgment of God. And yet, flowing through the window illuminating her life is an ethereal light, a symbol of God's grace. An ordinary scene becomes transfused with supernatural presence and truth. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. I want to talk about the intersection of theology and the ordinary. Uh, The intersection of who God is with the everyday experiences of our life. Uh, in, In the everyday experiences, often some of the best wisdom is communicated on bulletin boards. I love looking at bulletin boards, especially in the workplace. My background in x-ray technology, and uh, I was headed to pre-med when God got a hold of me, and I used to love to watch communication from management to labor. And then I loved to see responses from labor back to management. On one employee bulletin board, it said, in case of a fire, this was from management to labor, in case of the fire, a fire, flee the building with the same reckless abandon that occurs every day at quitting time. <laughs> that was wisdom. Similar was a sign in a San Francisco florist shop that said, if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, you ought to be here at 5 o'clock. Another one said this, did you ever notice when you run into a man or a woman with real enthusiasm for hard work, he or she turns out to be your boss? They're always enthusiastic for work. Or another one, I love this one, to make a long story short, there's nothing like having the boss walk in. That shortens some stories. Well, the term paradigm was a term for a videotape series that, uh, that, that filtered through management and labor relationships not too long ago. And, and, and it, was, it was designed to help management and labor look at their work, the everyday of their lives, from a different set of lenses, from a different perspective. The term paradigm shift was introduced by one named Thomas Kuhn in his book, uh, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. In Kuhn's book, he, he, he tracked where in history there has been major, major cataclysmic mental changes in the way we understand our world. Copernicus, for example, countered Ptolemy of Egypt in advocating that the center of the universe was indeed the sun and not the earth. Newtonian physics was considered the greatest shift until Einstein's theory of relativity. Uh, Recent books have been written. One, for example, that says that when you have a major shift in the way people communicate, from oral to written, from written to broadcast, now from broadcast to digital, that there has been a major worldview shift in communication, in education, in science, in the expression in the workplace. Paradigms are are lenses through which we see our world. and, 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 And no other place in the Scripture does God seek to change the paradigm of the way we live but then in the wisdom that Jesus tells in those great short stories called parables. 
Parables were intended by Jesus to cause a paradigm shift, to to shift the way we think concerning the way God chooses to operate in his kingdom purposes on, on planet earth in preparation for eternity. The parables are Jesus' lenses through which one is invited to see how God wants us to live in the wisdom of the word as opposed to the wisdom of the world. If you have your Bibles open to that great passage in Matthew chapter 19, it it really gets introduced with a conversation that Jesus has with a rich young ruler. Uh, A a rich young ruler comes to him, as you see in chapter 19, and, and he says in verse 16, Teacher, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life, to obtain eternal life? To which Jesus challenges his premise, Why do you call me good? There is no one. Uh, There's only one who is good. And then Jesus surprises us. He says, but if you would like to enter into life, uh, let me show you the law. Here are the commandments. Do the commandments. And he says, well, which ones? And Jesus quotes a few, and he says, I did all of those. Uh, What am I still lacking? And Jesus says in verse 21, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Now, what Jesus is doing is adapting his argument to the person. We know from the New Testament, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. So why would Jesus quote the law and hold up the mirror of the commandments to a man who is asking, what good thing can I do to to inherit eternal life? Well, that would be like saying to someone... How hard do I have to swim in order to get to Hawaii? And the person saying, you're going to have to jump a long ways off that pier. It's a hyperbolic illustration because there is no amount of righteousness that you can do to merit eternal life. But what he does say is, look, if if we're dealing with your stuff... There is a way for you not only to have eternal life, but also reward of treasure in heaven. And so what he does is he turns those around in a great uh, figure of speech, and he says, if you'll give up what you think will get you there, and if you will follow me, you will not only have eternal life for following me, but you'll have treasure for the dedication that you demonstrate. But the young man revealed his problem, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great wealth. Well, Peter's been listening in to all of this. And and, and Jesus said to his uh, disciples in verse 23, Truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And again, I say to you, it's easier to stuff the largest animal of the culture through the smallest aperture, the smallest opening of the culture, a camel through a sewing needle. I mean, it's a hyperbolic illustration. It's easier to take a camel and stuff it through a a sewing needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Well, that just shocks the disciples. Because they, they, they had bought into Pharisaical theology that God loves rich people and he doesn't love poor people quite as much. And the reason that, God, that you're rich is God blessed you and the reason you're poor is that God hasn't. So in their mind is, if a rich man can't get there, then nobody can get there. And so they ask the, 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 you know, the rhetorical question, well, who can be saved? To which Jesus says, with God, all things are possible. With man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Now, if you have a good study Bible, this would be a great phrase to track backwards. 
Because the first time that phrase, with God, all things are possible, is found in a classic passage in Genesis chapter 18, where the, the, the three visitors, the angelic visitors, show up at the tent of Abraham and Sarah, and, 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 and Abraham is about 99, Sarah is about 89, and, uh, and God tells them that within the year they're going to have a baby. Well, Sarah's not sure she heard real well. She starts laughing. And so God said, that's great. Let's call the child laughter. And so Isaac's name means laughter. Can you imagine every time she steps out on the back porch of the tent and says, hey, I laughed. Oh, man, I wish I hadn't laughed. Every time she calls him to dinner, she's reminded of the promise of God at which she laughed and at the blessing of God because I think God has a sense of humor. I mean, if you read Romans chapter 3, it's pretty blunt, and I'll try to be a little discreet, but Romans says that Abraham, by this time, he had already had a baby, uh, Ishmael, through Hagar, but God del- deliberately waited till he was really old. And the Bible says he was as good as dead, weak as it was in the flesh, unable to perform. You get the picture. And God surprised this old couple with a baby. Why? Because God can do what's humanly impossible to do in create life in the womb of Sarah, a barren woman, with Abraham who can't cut it. With God, it's possible. The next time that phrase is used is by a young maiden who is uh, not yet married but is told she's going to have a baby without a man. Mary. She says, how is this possible? I've never known a man, Luke chapter 2, or Luke chapter 1. And, 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 he, and, and he says, well, this will happen when the Holy Spirit of God comes upon you, and this, this holy child will, 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 will be the result of the Spirit of God in your life. And the text says, nothing, nothing is impossible with God. God can take a woman and through his omnipotence can bring about a son named Jesus, his own son, through a virgin birth. The miraculous provision of life when humanity couldn't do it on her own. Like the birth of Isaac and like the birth of Jesus, so is the new birth of every single one of us. With man it's impossible, with God all things are possible. What a great line through the text. It's about that time that Peter's been listening in on this conversation, and he's thinking, hmm. I love the way Peter thinks. He thinks out loud. He says, Lord, we, uh, Lord, we've left everything. What do we get? Now, if I'd have been the Lord, I'd have gone, shh, shh, don't ask that question, Peter. You're getting a little mercenary in your ministry. See, see, Peter reveals, uh, you know, what the two classic questions uh, that, that relate to the workplace are. Uh, labor and management. Uh, one of those questions, management asks, does the work really merit the pay? See, see, what management wants to know is, will we get enough work for the kind of pay that we're going to have to dish out? That's a question in management's mind. Uh, the question, on the other hand, from uh, labor, labor says, Do the pay, does the pay really merit the work? And, and, and this is at the crux of all labor and management relationships. And so Peter's saying, Lord, we have extended all of the effort we know how to extend. What do we get paid? 
And instead of rebuking him, look at what the Lord says in verse 28. Truly I say to you, you who have followed me in the regeneration, now watch, this is a period of time in the future, watch him describe it. When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, while he is co-regent on the Father's throne, he's not yet sitting on his own throne. In the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his own throne, you also, he's talking to the disciples, will sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Question, little theology tonight. Does Jesus believe there's a future for the nation of Israel? Say yes. Yes. Does he see a time when the Lord will reign on a glorious throne over Israel? Say yes. Yes. Will the disciples have a co-regent responsibility during that period called the the regeneration? When the Son of Man rules, will they be co-regents with him while he reigns and they reign over Israel? Say yes. They got it. They got it. You'd expect me to harp on that because I teach at Dallas Seminary, wouldn't you? Okay? We believe in a future for the nation of Israel. We believe in a literal millennial reign of Christ on the earth. We believe that that'll be a glorious reign. We believe that saints will be resurrected to reign with him. And and they will reign over the nation of Israel, the tribes of Israel. But what about the rest of us? So he goes broader. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or children or farms for my namesake shall receive many times as much and like the rich young ruler, and if that wasn't enough, and shall inherit eternal life. As if that's something to sniff at. But, Peter, the first will be last and the last will be first. Now jump down to chapter 20, verse 16 with me. The other end, that's the front end bookend. That was just the introduction. Verse 16. Thus the last will be first and the first will be last. Well, if the first are last and the last are first and the last are first and the first are last, I'm confused. Who's in front? And that's part of the point. And so I invite you into one of those paintings within a painting a parable within the history as the wisdom of God shines a light on the everydays of our life. And he wants us to have a perspective of how theology interfaces with the ordinary. So he says this, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who who goes out early in the morning and hires laborers to go work in his vineyard. The the term for landowner here is very important. In Greek, it is a combination of the word for house and the combination of the word for a ruler. A a, a house ruler, the oikod despotate. And, and, And that's an important term because it's one who is in authority, it's one who's in charge, and it says that the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And, and when he had, had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. The word agreement, we get our English word symphony. Symphoneo, to sound together. In, in our culture, it's musicians and, and musical, uh, you, you, know, um, you, you know, musicality. 
But uh, in, in the first century, that term was also used in the arena of labor management relationships for striking a bargain. To say the same thing. Here was what the deal was. He goes out early, about 6 o'clock in the morning, and he says, I want to hire you for a day of, of labor, and I'm going to pay you a day's wage. Now, a denarii, a denarius, was one day's pay for the average foot soldier or peasant farmer. And so he went out to the intersection, and he said, Are you willing to work? I'm willing to work. Uh, let's strike a bargain. So he hired some early in the morning. Let's call it 6 o'clock, as we'll see in the text. And for a day of labor, they get one denarius. That's the agreement. And so they go and, and, and work in the vineyard. And evidently, it's crop time, and it's harvest time, and, and grapes on the vine are very precarious in the sugar content. It has to be picked just right at just the right timing. And, and, and he went out about the third hour. That would be about 9 o'clock in the morning. And he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. little play on words in the Greek text. Argus in the agora. It's like being at the mall and not shopping. You know, it's being at, like a, at, the, at the playground and not playing. He says, you're, you're in the marketplace, but you're not working. So he said to those, you too go to the vineyard, and whatever is right, I'll pay you. I want you to think from a management and labor perspective with me a little bit tonight. If a, a whole day merits one denarius, then three quarters of a day would merit what? Three quarters of a denarius. Good. It, it, that, that's the logic. What, whatever is just, whatever is right. Verse 5, again, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour at 12 o'clock at noon and 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and he did the same thing. I take it that he said, whatever is right, that's what I'll pay you. For a half a day, a half a denarius. For a fourth of a day, a fourth of a denarius. He did the same thing. Now, watch, look up here for a minute. If I have 6 o'clock and 9 o'clock and 12 o'clock and 3 o'clock, what am I expecting? 6, 9, 12, 3, and Hello? Six. Good. Some of you are going, I, I, I want to say it, but I don't think it's going to be the right answer. And you're right. Look what it says. And about the 11th hour, that's 5 o'clock in the afternoon. It's hard to believe. He went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said, Because no one hired us. Well, he says, You too go into the vineyard. Now, I, I love it. In Arlington, Texas, where I live, on Cooper Street, we can drive up Cooper Street early in the morning, and there are a, a, a batch of day laborers who are standing beside the road waiting to be hired for a day of work. I love going to Israel and taking groups to Israel. And uh, out, outside of, uh, or inside the Jaffa Gate, there's a group that meets there. But north of the Damascus Gate, just north of the old city, there's a group that gathers... And if we're on the bus early in the morning and we're driving around the old city, we'll see them. And they're usually there with a plastic bag. They have an egg, uh, they, a hard-boiled egg. Uh, they have a, a tomato, sometimes a cucumber. And often they'll buy one of those little racetrack-shaped you know, uh, bagels from the early morning market that tastes so good at 7 o'clock in the morning. And, and they'll put those in their plastic bag. And they're standing there waiting to be hired for a day of labor. When I was doing doctoral work at Dallas Seminary, I worked for a moving company and, uh, on Saturdays, and we had 50 students that would be hired 
One of our students was given a full paid scholarship to organize us, and the rest of us showed up. And, and, and what I loved about working for that moving company is that you worked, you got $10 an hour, which back in those days when the earth was still cooling was good money. And, uh, and, and we got paid at the end of the day. There was something really wonderful about getting paid at the end of the day. Well, at 5 o'clock, evidently the harvest is so strategic and so urgent that he's out there and he says, how come you guys aren't working? Nobody hired us. He says, get to the vineyard. The guy's thinking, I've got to go home and face the missus. I've got to go home and face the kids. One hour is better than no hours. Let's do it. Now, now, that's the day on the job in the parable that Jesus tells. Then comes the evening. Now, according to the Mosaic Law in both Numbers as well as in Leviticus, if you hired a day laborer, you had to pay them at the end of the day. You weren't allowed for the sun to go down without paying them. You couldn't lean them over into the next day. That was against the law. It was sinful and viewed as unjust. And so notice what the text says in verse 8. And when evening had come, the, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the last group to the first. Now the term for owner here is a different word than for the landowner up in verse 1. Here is the word kurios, which is the great word for the Lord who has the right to judge and reward. He, he is the, the Lord of the living and the dead. And so Jesus uses the term because this is a parable of analogy between what happens in the earthly marketplace and the kingdom program of God. And so he asks the foreman to begin to pay the wages, beginning, and here's the echo of our bookends, beginning with the last group and going to the first. Now when those who were hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received, and here's the surprise of the package, a denarius. Now, just think about this. Here, here comes the, 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 the foreman, and, and, and he, he pulls out the money sack, and he, he, he reaches in, and, and, and he's going to pay the 11th hour guy a denarius. Now, here's the lineup. Here's the 6 o'clock, the 9 o'clock, the 12 o'clock, the 3 o'clock, and the 5 o'clock guy. And, and he gets a denarius. I have a feeling. It's not in the text. It's just Bailey's revised slanted perversion. I have a feeling he probably cocked that shoulder to hide that thing. Looked at that Daenerys and thinking, because, you know, management, listen, management, labor talks. You know, if you're in management and you think it's all secretive, relax. Labor talks. How much are they going to pay you? Oh, they promised me a Daenerys. Really? Twelve hours for a Daenerys? I'm working one hour, one-twelfth of a Daenerys? Okay. And he gets a whole Daenerys, twelve times what he expected. I bet he cocked that shoulder, put that Daenerys inside his tunic and went, oh. I want to show up tomorrow. He's a generous worker. Comes to the three o'clock guy. Pulls out the cash and peels off another denarius. A denarius. I bet he's sitting there going, all right, I'll take it. Four times what I expected. Twelve o'clock guy gets his. I bet he's pretty happy. Though he's starting to wonder... Can you imagine a guy at 6 o'clock? He's down there watching this going, a denarius. Whoa, a denarius? 
a denarius, and the setup is there. Look to the nine o'clock, a denarius, and he's ticked. That's in the Greek. <laughs> you think I'm lying, let me show it to you. Look at verse 10, and when those who had hired first came, they thought, here's the key, they thought they would receive more. But they also, each one received a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled. That's a great Greek word, engonguzon. Let me say it again, engonguzon. Say it with me once. Engonguzon. Say it three times. Yeah, it reminds us of, of high school English and literature, and they called that onomatopoeia, which means it sounds like what it is. Grumble, 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 grumble. You know, they're mumbling, you know, and, and they thought they'd receive more, and they start grumbling, saying, you know, these guys worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden, the scorching heat of the day. Talk about a labor management suit. What are you doing? Now, if you're in management, you're going, it's okay. If you're in labor, you're going, this isn't fair. This isn't fair. It's in the response of the landowner, which is the response of God, that we learn how theology intersects the ordinary. Watch what he says. But he answered and he said to one of them, friend, and by the way, whenever Jesus uses that word friend, it's not too friendly. It's like our hey, buddy. You can track it. Whenever Jesus says friend, it's a little stern. It's a little distancing term. Friend, <laughs> I'm doing you no wrong. Here comes the hardest question of the day. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Remember, 6 o'clock this morning, you want to be hired? Yes, I have a, work of, a, a day of work. I'll give you a denarius for the day. Did you agree for a denarius for the day? That had to be the toughest question to answer. Yes, but... No, 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 no. Did we make a symphony? Did, did, did we not have an agreement? A day for a denarius, a denarius for the day? Isn't that what we said? Yes, but... <laughs> Now watch this. I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Now what, what I want to do very quickly is I, I want to give you uh, the, the day on the job in the kingdom of God. The 6 o'clock, 9 o'clock. See if I can get this right. 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 5 o'clock. And now it's 6 o'clock. But I, I want to give you three characteristics of the consummate CEO. This is one you'd love to work for. And like the landowner in the parable, God, as the consummate CEO, is always just. God is always just. Friend, I am not doing you wrong. There is no literally unrighteousness. Adiakaios. There is no unrighteousness here. Didn't I pay you just like I promised you? And the answer is yes. God is absolutely righteous. All of the time. Now, the good thing is he's not just just. He's more than that. 
But he will never be less than just. And you can trust that one. He is the ultimate boss. That he will always do what is right. Now, if you're in labor, you're saying, now, I don't think this is too right. It doesn't seem fair. And you know what? The answer is, it's not. But it's not unjust. It's right. Some of us still in gangoods on over it. But it's true. But look what he goes on to say. Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give this last man... The same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Now, that's the second toughest question he asks. Whose field is it? Yours. Whose right is it to hire you? Yours. Whose tools are you using? Yours. Whose crop is it? Yours. Whose profit is it? Yours. Who's going to sign your check? You. Isn't it all mine? The answer is yes. Can I do what I want with what is my own? I guess. And in our pride, one of the biggest struggles that we always have is wrestling with the sovereignty of God because like the landowner, God is absolutely sovereign. You see, the first one, because God is just, that ought to eliminate complaints because he'll never be unjust. But like the second one, like the owner, God is sovereign, and that ought to eliminate comparisons and eliminate jealousy. Because God is God. He can do what he wants with what he wants anytime he wants. Amen? Amen. A little weak. We struggle with it, don't we? Our flesh struggles with it. Like the landowner, God is not only just, he's not just just, he's absolutely in control and never out of control all of the time. Wouldn't you love to work with somebody that was absolutely right all the time and always in control? Well, maybe. But there's a third. Look at the question at the end of verse 15. Or is your eye envious because I'm generous? There's a little play on words here. Is your eye paneros, evil? Do you have an evil eye because I'm agathos, generous? Are are you becoming evil because I'm good? Are you jealous because I'm generous? I, I wish to give this last guy the same as to you. Can I do with what I want with what is my own? Isn't that my right? Yes. Do you have an evil eye? Because I'm generous? It's a tough question. Like the the landowner, God is just. Like the landowner, God is sovereign. But like the landowner, God is also generous. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? There's three characteristics for the ultimate CEO, but there are two principles for a permanent payroll. I think in the immediate context, the caution is, Peter, nobody has left all that you have left. Nobody has worked all day long like you have worked who will not get many times as much and eternal life. That's the deal. Is that okay? Sure. It pays to serve the Lord. And God will give you exactly what he promised. But Peter, what what do I do with those that come because of the grace of God at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. 
what if, what if it's a Gentile who comes at the end of this process? I've worked with Israel for all of these centuries, and what if a Gentile shows up? Can't a Gentile coming into a relationship with God get the same reward as all of those who have served all of these years? I think there's a little bit of that in the historical context. But I think by application, some of us came to know Christ at age seven. And we, to the best of our ability, have served our Lord all life long. Will God take that into account? And the answer to that is yes. Because one of the principles of the payroll is that when I look at Peter, I need to be faithful because merit is rewarded. Merit is rewarded. God will promise, and he will reward faithfulness. But what if a 75-year-old comes to Christ? I talked to a lady who came to Christ at about, you know, uh, age 40. And she's been walking with the Lord faithfully ever since. If she, with all the opportunity that she's had, has has been a a, a 90% faithful, couldn't she get the same reward as somebody who's been 90% faithful since age 7? Wouldn't that be okay with God? Aren't you glad that's still possible? Because God's grace has no limits. And a person can come to Christ late in life be faithful with all of the opportunity that God has given them and doesn't have to worry that they lost a lifetime of opportunity and reward. See, only God could have put this package together because from Peter, I learn I need to be faithful since merit is rewarded. But from the parable, I learn I need to be thankful when grace is remembered. I need to be thankful because God not only rewards proportionately, God rewards graciously. I like that. It it, it helps me balance the character qualities of God. God is not just just. He's also merciful. God is not just truth. He's also patient. God is not just sovereign. He's also generous. Amen? Yeah. The third century, a rabbi by the name of Abba Barkahana. Don't you love that name? tells a parable similar to illustrate. He says, The matter is like a king who hired laborers and brought them into his garden. He hid and did not reveal what was the reward of working in the garden so that they might not neglect that part of the work for which the reward was small and go and do that part for which the reward was great. In the evening he summoned them all and said, Under which tree did you work? And he said, Under this one. And he says, The king said, Well, that's a pepper tree. Its reward is one gold piece. And he said to the next, under which tree did you work? And he said, under that one. And the king said, well, that's a white flower tree. Its reward is a half a gold piece. He asked the third, under which tree did you work? And he said, under this one. And the king replied, well, that's an olive tree. Its reward is 200 zuzum, whatever that is. The laborers said to him, ought you not to have told us the tree under which the reward was the greatest? To which the king replied, if I had done that, how would all of my garden been tilled? See, we in our Christian experience tend, especially within church, to look at who's up here or who's up front and say, you know, that's a great reward position. But all of us who have served in these kinds of roles know it's those who work behind the scenes, those who take care of our kids, those who set up, those who make sure the air conditioning works, those who run the sound and the lights, and those who make sure all the chairs are ready for the orchestra, 
It's all of those that work behind the scenes that make ministry possible. And those of us who have served long enough in these roles, we know that someday the first will be last and the last will be first and the last will be first and the first will be last. And only God knows how he'll order that reward line of eternity. But I've got to tell you, there's guys like Jim Hoover who work in our EV department who I couldn't work without. And he's going to be at the front of the reward line of heaven, and when his name is called, I'm going to go, Yay! He ought to be up there. Faithful, never wants to be up front, hides in the back, behind the, the deck, and he just makes it happen, and he serves God with such a whole heart and an excellence. And he raises the bar on everything we do. Those nursery workers who work in the nursery, we who tend to preach overtime once in a while know they should be in front of us in the reward line of heaven. And I'm going to cheer them on. Because God is always right. God is always in control. And God is always generous. Wouldn't you love to work for a boss like that? Always just, never unjust. Always in control, nothing ever takes him by surprise. And I never have to worry that it's always going to be a more than I've ever had to serve, more than I've ever given up, more than on the reward side of the plank and the ledger. I don't know about you, but that's one I want to go to work for tomorrow. That's one I want to serve tomorrow. When the light of God's truth intersects with the daily routine and we live in light of that wisdom takes place the Hebrews called it chokmah chokmah wisdom happens that's what I want to have happen in your life and in my life this week God mixing it up as our ultimate boss in the everyday and the ordinary of whatever we do. Let's pray to that end, shall we? Father, thank you that we can trust you and your character and serve you knowing that you alone can put our time, our effort, opportunity all together. Whether we've served you for a lifetime or we've come into this a little bit late, you still allow us to serve you with a whole heart and you promise full reward. May we serve you with great effort because your rewards are proportionate, but may we serve you with gratitude knowing we owe you to thank for showing up at the intersection of our life and inviting us to serve you. And we just want to say thanks. For your great grace that we've sung about and talked about this Sunday and that this group of people will get to sing about and talk about through this series. I'm so grateful for this church and its leadership. And I ask that your hand of blessing, protection, and direction would be upon it. For your glory, we pray through your son's name.